Takahoe is the actual mailing uh, address, but Yonkers actually is, it is, it is Yonkers proper. So if we go to Amazon to order anything, Takahoe or Yonkers, it'll get here eventually. Wow. So eventually though is the key word there. Not this past weekend, Father, but the weekend before, I went to confession at your sister church, Our Lady of Fatima. Oh, I have all different times. And, and, and I was online for confession for an hour and a half. Come on, really? So, Father, the line after the confession. There's just one lady there, in front of Left hand side confessional. <laughs> the line went down to the front, across in front of the sanctuary, and up the right side. Whoa, wow. I don't know what was in the the Holy Spirit was doing something that day. Well, you know, those people in Scarsdale, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I was going to say, we're much better behaved in Connecticut. <laughs> yeah. We got a lot of sins, I know that. <laughs> I grew up in Rye, those Scarsdale people. We know all about them. <laughs> You know it. You got it. You got it. That's right. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. Fatima, more than renunciation. A lot of confessions. Yeah. Wait, the, um, I used to have a noon mass in New York City at uh, okay. that church, right, right near Grandstone uh, Station. Okay. Our, oh, late, was... uh, our Savior? Uh, no. Uh, no um, St. Agnes. St. Agnes. 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 Right. Yeah. My God, the line for confession was throughout the entire 12 I mean, they had three masses in a row midday, mm-hmm. and the line was for the whole time. I mean, well, just, yeah. And a part of why the city has a lot of confessions is people that you're anonymous, yes. they don't know you, and they're going to see you again probably. Whereas your own home parish, it gets kind of awkward, or even a neighboring parish. Mm-hmm. It might be helpful, but you know, it's still that father I see there every so often, the store, I don't know. So. I mean, we don't, we don't really care. I, I, I figure my seniors, my seniors got to deal with me for the good. He's going to get me for the bad, too. That's <laughs> it. Here you go. Good idea about it, Chris, for sure. <laughs> it's all you, buddy. You're stuck Indeed. with me. Oh. Yeah. So when is the last class? The last class itself, I believe, is December Okay. So. I, I got to start the paper, and I just want to make sure that I yeah. wasn't. So the first Monday, well, the first Monday of December is actually class, the last class of the semester. The next week, which would be the final exam, whatever that, that thing is, the 14th, whatever that mm. second Monday of December is, uh, no class that night, but your exams are due emailed to me by the 14th, either on or by the 14th. When will you give them to us, the week before, or? Yeah, yeah, but, you know, I'll give it to you about a couple weeks before that. Yeah, you can um, give them now if you'd like. That'd be great. I haven't made it up yet, so I don't know <laughs> what I'm going to ask. <laughs> we, could, we could just do open. Yeah, just come up with the best questions. Well, it's a great. It's all open book because take me yeah, over. So, so why don't we just turn our notes in? <laughs> well, that may be that's maybe a better better adjudicator, but you guys have been learning all semester. Yeah, I don't know if I, if I want to see that or not. I'm sure. Yeah, a bit of a concern. So. So the way it'll be, I can tell you guys for my own, just for for sense of this, the way I'm going to do it is you're going to get like six terms to define, just to give you a sense of what the terminology is. We talked about all semester, and then two case studies. So it's going to be applying what we've learned to real world, actual situations. Because mm. at the end of the day, that's the part of this course is is applying practice, applying. Uh, you know what we've learned to the practical reality of what you're going to encounter in parishes. That's kind of the or the hospital or a nursing home or on the street, whatever the case may be. So, will there be choices of the of the those? Uh... It was take home. Come on. 
So the answer to that question is no. So I'm sorry. <laughs> right. You're going to have two weeks to do it, so it's, or even more than that. So I'll plenty of time to figure it out. I promise. Okay. Don't worry. <laughs> what was the, I if missed it that. Was, if, it was, if it was an actual hour and a half writing furiously, three handfuls off, then I give you guys choices to give you some, some hope. That's O'Reilly. That's yeah. an O'Reilly, that's that? an O'Reilly exam. It's, I think he weighs oh, the exam booklet. He gives you a grade by weight, how much ink has gone <laughs> under the page. I, uh, I had him in class, so I know. I know very well what, uh, what he expects. <laughs> that's crazy. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. You don't want to be the first out of that class, right, John? <laughs> John, Dr. Williams would literally come into class half an hour later, walk out. He'd get an A, but he'd be literally, he'd be done half an hour. Our, our mouths would drop. I know. But he did a great, yeah, he won one of the highest grades. You know, if you if you answer the question as best as you can, then get out of Dodge. Just don't even, you know, just answer it and move on. But O'Reilly asks you, I mean, it's dense, it's dense material. You know, Christology is not a particularly um, light topic to cover. How many classes have we had with O'Reilly, this, our group? Three, four, two, three. Christology, Trinity. You got <laughs> and ecclesiology. Yeah, you got three, right. three, three classes with him. And now he's my thesis advisor. Oh, okay, good. Uh, yeah, we're gonna get one, one course him, in the summertime. Both classes, and we had him for uh, Eucharist and fourth. I thought I was your thesis advisor, Chris. Yeah, that's gonna happen. <laughs> So at the end of the end of our Trinity exam, because I went into this, you know, the second book, and I, I wrote, uh, and I think I've solved the mystery. The answer is, and I tore the page out. <laughs> he didn't Clever. find that humorous at all. Did? Of course he did. He acted like oh, he didn't. you know him. He, he tells Rodney Dangerfield jokes. I know. That's what I'm saying, come on, that doesn't yeah. sound like him at all. Well versed in the classics. Well versed in the classics. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy! All how right. How do you like his? How do you like his jokes? Me personally? Yeah. Well, when you're a seminarian, you're obliged to laugh. You have to. <laughs> so, I don't get any respect. I don't get any respect. That's right. No, but um, they're, they're for radio. Corny, like dad jokes, you know. So you have to kind of just let it go. But uh, but yeah. All right. Why don't we say a prayer, huh? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, praise for us, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, as we're talking about, like, practical stuff, I had a very practical thing happen to me yesterday, um, helping out at Mass. So I'm at two parishes on weekends that I help out at upstate New York. So I get to the parish yesterday for Mass, the homily's already well prepared to give my, my homily and say Mass and the whole thing. And I get to the sacristy. And the server says, Father, just so you know, um, the Mass is being celebrated today for a kid who committed suicide last year and his family's here. I'm like, oh, great. Okay. Now I'm thinking, you know, all right, the homily is parable of the ten virgins, all right? And the parable talking about Jesus closing the door on somebody. And I'm like, how do I how do I take this homily, which is challenging the homily, and now like soften it for the crowd that's ahead of me? Because if parish normally is not very crowded, mass yesterday was crowded. So clearly it was family, probably some friends. Okay. Now I'm thinking to myself, how the heck do I kind of soothe this message? 
there's not like a harsh, brutal, you know, God closing his door on you kind of uh, kind of thing. So, in the middle of the, of the mass, I'm listening to the readings, and the second reading is Paul Thessalonians talking about God taking you to Himself, uh, coming with a trumpet blast, you know, that will rise again in Christ, and I'm like, all right, they get the homily, but I, but I kind of work in the idea of as harsh as it may sound in the gospel today, St. Paul today, in the second reading, reminds us of God's mercy and taking him to himself, his love for us, his compassion for us, because you have to be figuring some way here of, like, soothing over this really difficult, you know, situation. But that is what you're going to, what you're going to encounter. And no one walked out, no one threw anything at me, so figuring it went pretty well. Uh, but... But it is, it is a challenge, guys, because you're going to be hit with that sometimes. It happened to me twice on weekdays with my, my deacon for the Mass, so heads up to you guys. My deacon for the Mass read the wrong gospel. So now I, walking from the priest chair to the ambo and working out a homily in my head. Now, weekdays are easy. Simple, short, get to the point. You know, be good, love God, break for animals, and you're, you're pretty much you're good. But, um, you know, weekends is... A little more complicated. So yesterday was um, a bit of a challenge, but you learn after years of ministry how to like soothe over those harder messages when they come, and they are they are difficult when they um, when they come to you for sure. So it's. Uh, well, Riley told us just to mention the Eucharist. Just mention the Eucharist. Oh, yeah. and you're Absolutely. all set. Yeah, just yeah. Talk about the Eucharist, and you're good. He's right. He's right. That's that's always the safest out. It's true. He told us in, in liturgy. If ever you're doing anything liturgical, when in doubt, can you flect? And can't go wrong, you know? <laughs> so I've applied that in my own, uh, whenever I'm not sure about anything. But it's funny because you find yourself, the mindset of this is so, so ingrained in you. I'm walking out of like a movie theater, getting to the end of the run, I'm like, oh, wait, no, I'm never in the theater. Never mind, I'm not trying to flect. Don't mind. <laughs> so, um, or does it have a very Pavlovian in my responses there? But just to get back about the idea of um, talking about suicide, just to be uh, a little bit serious for a minute here, like th there is nothing more difficult you're going to preach on or have to deal with in your ministry, frankly, I think, than when you have a case of, of a suicide. And, you know, sadly, it is the kind of thing that we see occurring more and more in our society, especially, God help us, among the youth. You know, John mentioned last week, and I'm, I'm happy and grateful for it, the uh, whole idea of the spiritual reality behind some of this stuff. And I, I am convinced there's a demonic element behind the, the level of suicide amongst the young especially. Mm -hmm. Hopelessness amongst the young people. I mean, they should be excited about life and, and excited about the future. And instead, they despair. So there, there, there's something going on here which is, uh, is very, very troubling. But, you know, the great challenge of suicide is people blame themselves. Not only is there this, the, the, the terrible grief and sorrow over a loss that's tragic, but it also becomes a matter of your own personal grief. What didn't I see? What didn't I pick up on? What more could I have done? So you're at a, you're at a, at a funeral mass or a, or a wake service even, or a burial, saying a few words when it comes to a suicide, it's the hardest. Burying a child, burying a baby is, is brutal, it's, and it's, it's very, very difficult. But this, there's an extra element when it comes to suicide that is just, is even more, even more um, 
difficult and, and disturbing. And, you know, when I, was in, when I was in the parish, the kids would ask me sometimes, you know, Father, if a person kills themselves, do they go to hell? And my, my comment then, well, listen, guys, our, this is for everybody to hear this, our strongest natural impulse is self-preservation. For someone to act directly contrary to that most powerful impulse means something is not right psychologically. Something is snapped, something is cracked, something is wrong, frankly. And that mitigates the freedom to commit the act. And when freedom is mitigated, the the level of culpability for sin is mitigated as well. So we don't despair of a case like that. We trust in the mercy of God. And it's very important if we have a case like this in the parish to strongly emphasize the mercy of God and that kind of element. I begun homilies actually at funeral masses saying, no one here is to blame. No one here is guilty. This is a tragedy. And then kind of launch into the homily from there. The kind of very beginning of it. No one here is at fault for what happened. Because everyone there in some in some capacity is wondering, what did I miss? What did I not see? What could I have done? And the answer usually is nothing. Yeah, Peter, go ahead. No, I'm just saying, I understand that with adults. But I think when it comes to children, I mean, parents always blame themselves for their children of course no matter how old yeah. the children are yeah. but like you know something they didn't listen something they didn't see they're always going to live with that guilt yeah no peter absolutely and again you know when you have these, these funeral masses for tragedies like this and you, you know and I, I, i've asked deacons to preach them sometime because in some parish you know we as priests come in as associates especially we're there for three or four years tops and then we want something somewhere else in many cases, the deacon's been there for his whole life and his whole ministry now. There's a very good chance you will know the families better than we will, at least at the beginning when we get there. And I've asked the deacon sometimes to preach at a funeral mass where he knows the family, where he knows the situation, because he can speak to them in a way that I can. And it's very important that we have a sense of, of that when it comes to those types of situations. With a tragedy, any tragedy, when it comes to the wake, a good rule of thumb, this is again my own personal practice, but I learned from other priests, a good rule of thumb here, go and do the prayers before the crowds come. So for example, if it's two to four, seven to nine, most funeral homes have that. I would tell the family, I'll get there at 1.30. Just you and me, doors closed, we'll pray together, we'll have our time together, and then I'm out. Because what will happen, by the time you leave that funeral home, the, 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 funeral, the wake, the chapel, there'll be a line to the door because of people wanting to offer their, their condolences. If you walk in at you know 2.45 or 3.30, and there's a line of 100 people, everybody, now stop now, we're gonna pray. And chances are, some people there are not churchgoers, and they're like, oh, and I feel rushed. You know, I wanna be there and pray with the family, not feel rushed get through a wake service or something. Yeah, it's a personal practice. I'm not saying I'm right. That's something I've done myself when it comes to tragic situations like that. So you're able to be present to the family and then always, always, always offer to walk with them afterwards, especially in a tragedy. Because you leave the funeral, the mass is over, the burial is over, 
then the hard part begins. When the phone calls stop and the visits die down and you're sitting at home now pondering what the hell just happened to your family, that's when you need to have the church there to help pick up the pieces. As happened with families, you know, parents or siblings, a month, two months after the funeral, will call the father, can we talk to you now? Of course you can. And it makes the church present to them in those most difficult situations. Just again, as, as an important point there, when it comes to eulogies for funerals, as a rule of thumb, if you can avoid them, try to avoid them. Encourage them for the wake, the burial, the restaurant afterwards. People in today's day and age don't know where they are. And they will say things in eulogies that maybe could be said in a bar, but probably shouldn't be said in a church. So I try to encourage that. In my, in my second parish, and I was an associate there, they had a very strict policy, policy of no eulogies. It was great. Funeral home knew it. They asked for it, tell them. No eulogies, you know, this is the policy of the parish, forget it. So I'm there about two years. I go to the wake service. Family was fine. We prayed together. It was beautiful. Older guy passed away, so it wasn't something where it was a young person or that kind of a situation. Sad, but it wasn't like a, like a tragedy we were dealing with in the community. So I'm in the rectory at night, and the phone rings. The funeral home's calling. I say, Father, you want to do a eulogy? I said, well, you know our policy. We don't allow eulogies. So, well, they're pretty insistent on it, Father. They want to talk to you. And I'm like, all right, but I'm on the phone. And it's the granddaughter of the deceased. It's in the phone. Hi, how you doing? Hi, Father. So, um, do I understand that I can't honor my grandfather in the house of God tomorrow? And I'm like, I'm very calm now. Well, yeah, and for, you know, the policy here at the parish is for the eulogy to be done in the funeral home. It's, it's more, it's a more appropriate setting for that. You can be together. Well, the God that I believe in, Father, would want me to honor my grandfather in the house of the Lord. So very calm on the phone. Well, I'm really sorry about this. Like, this is the policy of the parish. So I, I apologize for any inconvenience. So Father, like tomorrow, tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning, like it or not, I'm giving this eulogy. And now I'm like, listen, I'm only the associate here. Talk to the pastor. And she does. And the pastor held the line. So as to how to go, he went terribly. And I said, well, what'd you talk about? Well, there's tomorrow morning, Chris, to say a good mass. You always, you always do reverend. And that's going to be it. I said, okay, how did it resolve itself? Don't worry about it. I am worried about it. What's going to happen tomorrow morning? So he's saying, um, you know, well, just don't worry. I'm like, ah, fine. Next morning, talking to the secretaries, you know, in the office about this, how it's going to go. And the pastor overheard me. Open to the office. This Chris, look, if you think it's going to be a big issue, you can allow the eulogy. I'll support you. But I can't myself allow it because I told good Catholic families for years now they couldn't have eulogies. So I can't all of a sudden myself make the exception. You're a celebrant. You can. So I did. And it was fine. But, like, imagine being threatened over a eulogy. I mean, it's crazy insane. Other smart policy. You know, this is a power policy, so it may not be where you, you guys are from. But good practice as well. 
eulogies at the beginning of the Mass, not the end. The reason for that is people are more composed at the beginning of the funeral Mass. At the end, they're a, they're a wreck, they're a mess. So it's much better having them up before the readings. So opening prayer, let us pray, be seated. Now I invite yourselves up over the eulogy, pick them up, give the eulogy, they sit down, and mass proceeds as usual. A couple of things help there. The first thing is that for the homily, most times the deceased is unknown to you. In the eulogy, you'll pick up perhaps, maybe, some pointers for the sermon, which can be helpful. The negative part of this is damage control. So if the daughter gets up there, and says something untoward or makes a comment. For example, it happened to me, but you know, a case once or a priest told me a story and it's like unbelievable. The uh, daughter gets up and goes, Mom, with a son of a bitch. <laughs> well, now what do you do? <laughs> I mean, now what do you do? You're caught, you're stuck, right? It gives the opportunity in that situation to, at the homily, try to maybe like say well all of our faults and our failings you try to like sudden with the homily to kind of bring it around but at that point you're really you're in trouble <laughs> no question about it and you're trapped you're trapped at that point as well so if possible avoid the eulogy if you can't try to work with it some pastor my first pastor said have to submit to us in writing the eulogy first so we can see it and approve it that's a great idea Except I had it happen with what they gave me at the funeral home the night before, but what said the next day in church, two different things. So you're lying to the priest, deceiving him to say what you want to say anyway the next step. And it's like, you got you kidding me here? You know? And little requests that happen. Again, working with people. So I had a case once where the deceased was a grandmother. And one of her requests was one of the songs in the mass to be played was Somewhere Over the Rainbow for the grandchildren. All right. Now, you don't have Wizard of Oz music in mass. Like, sorry, but I'm doing that. But grandma wanted this. And the grandchildren are all like, you know, this is important to grandma, our dying wish. All right. So maybe an ogre here. Or work with them. I said, here's what we're going to do. After Mass, before we get in the cars to go to the cemetery, after Mass, we'll play the song for everybody. They agreed to it. Thanks be to God. No violence is issued against me. So the Mass goes on, finishes as usual, beautiful Mass. And now get in the car and go to the cemetery. But now we had to all of that stop. Just stop. And listen to you know three verses of you know Dorothy singing you know, her little song you were told in the background. So, so now I mean, look, the funeral liturgies of the church move at a clip for a reason. They were sad leaving church. By the end of that song, it almost carried them to the cars. They were so like distraught. When you drag these things out, it benefits no one. The churches, wake services, and burials especially, they are quick. They're not long services for a reason. 
when you drag this stuff out, it does not help. So it's good for us to get a sense of that. Remember that in terms of compromise is good. It's not bad to compromise people because you don't want to be an ogre about these things. You also got to realize there, there, there's reasons why the church does things the way she does things when it comes to liturgy. And it's very important for us to have a sense of that as we uh, proceed forward in formation. There's reasons behind all of these things. So a little bit of an aside there, but an important aside. Because again, burials, wakes especially, we're going to be asking you guys to go and do that. Because I had a case where I had, I had two funeral masses back to back at a parish one, one, one morning. So a deacon went to the cemetery for me. I had a second funeral mass. That's how it goes. It was helpful when you have that. Yeah, Peter, go ahead. Uh, would it make sense to talk to the family before the mass, not necessarily immediately before the mass, whether it be during the funeral, uh, home, and so forth, to explain that? Because I, kn I know certain people, when they feel rushed, they feel like, all right, the Catholic Church doesn't care, what about is the money and so forth so if you explain that listen we want to not let this drag on or be a painful experience and we find from experience that we should do it at a quicker pace so the suffering the pain the agony will be lessened should we give yeah, it a point that? yeah it's a good it's a good habit in general when you go for the week uh to meet with the family just yourself for a few minutes before everybody else arrives there or on the side just or you can give a phone call just to get some sense of hey you know what did mom want before she passed away what was dad asking for before he died you know anything about mom i should see in the homily tomorrow just to get a sense of what they want to do and you can say peter you're right you know tomorrow morning out of the prayers it's beautiful it moves along at a, you know at a, at a at a, at a good clip we're not rushing anything and please know that the most important thing guys after this is over I'm here for you. We're here for you. The church is here for you. Please don't hesitate to call us. Let us know we love you. We're here for you. It's critical, especially because in today's culture, the impression people have of the church, of the clergy, ain't so positive. So when Father is kind, when Father is good, when Father is understanding, it helps. Lost you guys. Hang on a second. I lost my. Can you hear? Here we go. Oh, somebody, somebody called me and threw off my uh, <laughs> my video screen. Who called me? Um. <laughs> anyway, um. Yeah. So it helps to put on a good face of the church, and you are the face of the church. When they see you, if you're kind and understanding and, and you know, all those important things, it goes a long way. It really does to putting a good face on the church when it comes to um, these moments. And again, you know, we walk in there at the most critical moments of their life. And they're never going to forget your name, maybe forgotten. What you say, how you acted toward them, how the church was shown to them can go a long, long way, gents. And if you're, you know, at a funeral mass, someone's been gone for church for a long time, and they have, you know, compassion and mercy and kindness is given to them, that can be the opportunity. Evangelization happens, baptisms, weddings, funerals. That's where we evangelize because that's people are there who are unchurched, and they experience the church through the church's ministers. And so it's really important for us to get a sense of that. 
be attentive to it when we have our um, opportunities that are available to us. There's a saying, people may forget what you say, people may forget what you do, but people will always remember how you made them feel. Absolutely true. Absolutely true, Peter. It's, it's, it's a reality. Yeah, definitely. Any other insights, observations, or comments before you move on? Okay. So the readings were focused this past week on in hospital practices and end of life issues, beginning of life issues. We're going to continue here a little bit with the end of life stuff, but we're going to focus at the beginning of class tonight on the whole question of suffering and how do we address the issue of human suffering, especially as a result end of life issues and the nature of evil, especially. We all know this, but it's very important for us to remind our people that God is never the source of evil. God allows evil, but is never the source of evil. It's easy for us to explain sometimes the nature of what we call moral evil when people do terrible things. It's the reality of free will. Because love is a choice we make, we must have freedom in our will to be able to make that choice for love. It isn't an emotion, it isn't a feeling, it isn't chemistry, it's a free will choice that I make to, to embrace you know, love, to choose love. But because of that, the converse of that obviously, is a freedom to hate is there as well. Freedom to choose evil, choose the wrong, is just as evident as it is to choose love. Freedom is a necessity of that. So God works within the frame of our own choices. He allows us to bring good himself to bring good out of evil. And the greatest example of that is the cross. Nobody on Good Friday thought they were seeing a salvific sacrifice. No one thought that. Mary didn't think that. John didn't think it. Mary Magdalene didn't think it. No one thought that. They were witnessing a Roman execution. A brutal, torturous death. That's what they were seeing. And yet, God used that to save the world. The ultimate good from the ultimate evil. So that shows us that, and you know, sometimes we see the result. We see how God uses it. Oftentimes, we don't see the results. It's okay to say, you know what? I'm not sure. I don't understand. I don't know why. Those are all fair answers and they're honest answers. People will respect you more for an honest answer of, 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 of uncertainty than a boilerplate, well, God wanted that or God willed. Like, stop. No, no, no. And especially, especially when it comes to tragic end of life issues. When a child dies or a young person dies, People will say things with the, with the best of intentions, and they're really brutal. You say to somebody, well, I guess God needed them in heaven. What's God need? I need him here on earth, never mind heaven. Or I want another angel. Well, I want them here. It also is wrong in a sense of being theologically wrong, because we don't become angels, we become saints, some other question. But the reality is, um, 
have to be very careful when it comes to those issues. Say, I don't know why I did that, or why I got to let that happen, or why this certain thing happened. That's okay. And they respect you more for not giving them a, you know, canned answer to a tragic situation. So be aware of that as you go through your own ministry and deal with these situations. The harder question of evil is what we call natural evil. Hurricanes, earthquakes, fires, tsunamis. I mean, what is going on there? There was an English Anglican priest who was an astrophysicist, so a pretty, pretty smart guy. And he looked at the issue of natural evil. And what he said was, we live what he called a free process universe. What he means by that is there are certain laws that are inscribed into nature that cause things to happen. So for example, in the summer, water evaporates into the atmosphere. It, it meets with high power winds. What do you get? You get a hurricane. The hurricane then goes over Louisiana and decimates New Orleans. It's a part of the natural way of things. Under the earth right now, there are dozens of tectonic plates, very slowly, indescribably moving. We don't feel it, we don't perceive it. And every so often, you get a major tectonic shift under San Francisco, and they feel it. It's simply the nature of, how, of the earth. It's not anything wrong with it or morally wrong with it, it's how things work. So unfortunately, there are certain things in the universe, laws of the universe, frankly, where natural things just happen. And we deal with it, we have to handle it the best we can. But, so it's again, not the, the perfect answer here, but it brings us to some sense of, of what is, um, how to understand in a certain way, the reality of evil that we encounter in both moral evil as well as natural evil that exists uh, in the world. Because this is the reality of evil, to me personally at least, is the biggest and most uh, serious objection to the existence of God. Or at least to a God who is all good, all knowing, and all powerful. If God is all those things, why is there evil? That's a serious question. The Odyssey. And we answer it the Odyssey. by pointing to the morality of free will, the reality of free will, I think is a, is, a, is a great answer to that question of moral evil, and the reality of certain laws written into the nature of the universe. Gravity is a thing. It exists. So, I mean, there are, there are certain laws that are just there. And because of that, there are certain things that can be tragic that happen that affect us and, and tragedy ensues. But it isn't God causing those things to happen. Very important for us to to realize that God can use it, probably not prevent it, but He will use it for His own purpose and His own good. That's God's desire for us. That's awesome. Where would you put? Where would you put a classified like a plane crash or a car crash accident? That's major. So a plane crash accident can be a situation of well, of the plane crash. The vast majority of the time is pilot error. You know, were, they, were they trained properly? Were they? Was there something that was that was missed? There was a terrible uh, crash about three years ago. The pilot was suicidal. It crashed a plane into a, into a mountainside. I mean, a lot of times it depends upon the situation you're talking about. Um, you know, sometimes it's a mechanical failure. They were they weren't paying attention to, 
you know, human error is there. So that's what I would say in a case of, of uh, something of that nature. But again, you know, we don't want to be looking at this technically in the class on a Monday night, um, giving us some answers here is very different than how you approach it in the real world situation. Uh, because trying to give, you know, philosophical answers to people that are grieving is not going to work. So we can, we can make a sense of it here, James, but it's not going to be the easiest, you know, um, in the real world case. Does that make sense? Or is that... If not, no, it right. makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, Anthony. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I mean, essentially, we're talking about the Odyssey, and you have exactly. to kind, you have to kind of spin that to, you know, the people that are grieving, or to any other person that you're you're dealing with, into something that they can understand. That right. it's not God's fault. It's you know, it's it's this is these are things that happen. Um, nobody's causing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How about the uh, Augustinian theory? Augustinian theory meaning the, or the absence of the, uh, some, you know, uh, good. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, look, evil is a privation. Evil, you know, privation. evil is not necessarily right. evil is, as Augustine would put it, using it in kind of common parlance, evil can only twist what is good. Evil can't create. Evil can only distort. And that's you know, for every virtue, there's a corresponding vice, because the vice. This is simply the twisting of. You're blacked out. Yeah, evil is a privation of that which is good. It's a deprivation of what is good. Exactly. Yeah, because evil can't create. Evil only only right. destroys. Yeah. So, Father, I, it's not usually why did God do this. It's usually why didn't God stop this? And that's where people feel the vacation, you know, the vacating of the of God from their life as they feel Still the sense of. God abandoned us in this moment, and allowed this to occur. Yeah, that's typically what I see in those 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 moments of tragedy. Yeah, what I've used as an example of that, um, the answer to that question, I've had this happen before. So one of the things I talk about is, you know, Jesus in his ministry, in his life, experienced all of these things. Right, his cousin is murdered. His foster father, at some point, died before he was you know, probably a teenager. He experienced the loss of, of friends. And when he goes to Lazarus, Lazarus is very important. The story of Lazarus is critical. This is a really good point to make about the whole idea of suffering and, and how God responds. When he gets to the tomb, to Bethany, and Martha comes out to meet him, she's angry with Jesus. And her, and her words are, if you were here, my brother would not have died. In other words, he's your friend, Jesus, where were you for your friend? You raised the dead, you cured the sick, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, but your friend dies. Where were you? And Jesus. That way. Because that's exactly how she's answered. I mean, if we look at it in a, in a very human context, she's ticked. And so is Mary. Mary comes out with her sister and asks the same question. If you were here, Lazarus might never, never die. Where were you, Jesus? And what's his answer to them? He weeps. He cries with them. That's God's response with human suffering. He weeps with us over the over the evil that exists in the world that God doesn't want to exist because of the nature of sin and the fall does exist. But God weeps with us in those times of trial. We think about the passage where on the Sea of Galilee, on the boat, in the storm, 
And there's Christ asleep in the stern, in the boat sinking. And they're saying to him, Jesus, don't you care we're going to sink? Wakes up and is like, guys, calm down. Wind, waves, be still. And everything's quiet. He appears to be sleeping. And I wonder, was he really asleep? We're kind of like they're seeing their faith. It's a storm. It's rain. It's wind. It's at least sleep. I don't know. But the point of the, the, point of the story, though, the power of that passage is that it seems at times that Christ is asleep in the stirring of our life. He's not. He's very much present. And that can help a person that Jesus experienced all these pains, all these human sufferings, all these things that we ourselves deal with. That can help a person to see that Jesus is with you in the midst of this, not distant from all of you. Um, Father, can we return to Lazarus for a second? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's, I think there's a second part to that, which is that he says that I'm glad that I was not here. Yeah. And he, he's making the point that I think through the scripture reading that, you know, healing him would not have been such a tremendous feat as raising him from the dead. Mm-hmm. So something right. better comes from it, in other words. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point, Doug. Yeah, and, and you're right, because Jesus knows that raising Lazarus is kind of the last thing, the last miracle he does, by the way, in John's Gospel. And it really is um, the turning point for him, because Jesus, really, after that point, the high priest and the Sadducees and the Pharisees get really well concerned about this. The raising, you know, the daughter of Jairus, she's a girl. They can, they can dismiss her for being, you know, it was all just an act. She's a grown man who was dead for four days. Like, this is not, this is not somebody who you can dismiss as being, well, it was only a by accident healing. No, it's just a real thing. So when he raises Lazarus, that turns, actually, the whole gospel begins that the focus on his walk toward his passion. Because that is a terrifying prospect for the uh, chief priests and scribes. Because now Jesus is doing things that are beyond any prophet or great teacher could perform. <clears throat> so, yeah. Excellent. And, you know, as we get back to the whole idea here of, of God not intending evil in the world, I think back to that passage where Jesus talks about divorce and marriage, and he says, in the beginning it was not so. Well, surely, suffering and death, it's the same way. You know, God creates Genesis 1, this magnificent hymn, poem, really, of Genesis 1, of, of the creation of the world, creation of the universe. And God creates out of nothing, and he creates a cosmic temple. That's what he's creating. If we Genesis in the original kind of Hebrew in the context of that. Genesis 2, he places humanity in the sanctuary of that temple in Eden. And the Holy Holy of Eden is the Garden of Eden. Place of life, this place of, 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 of beauty and, and just all the grandeur God wants them to have. And Genesis tells us that God creates and is very good. And then we hear that God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening twilight. What a beautiful image of how God desires to walk with us in harmony and in peace. At this point, Adam and Eve, their will, intellect, completely aligned. There's no sin, no deprivation. There's no competition. It's all perfect in, in the garden. When Satan, as a serpent, enters the picture, he begins to make Adam and Eve doubt. Satan operates in doubt. 
And what does Satan do? If God knows you eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God. God's afraid of that. In other words, God's not really good. You can't trust God. It's a horrible thing that the father of lies says that the truth can't be trusted. That's the lie. And he, yeah, go ahead, Bob. Bob, raise your hand. Robert. You're muted. You go for the mute. Go ahead. You're good. Miracle of Zoom. Here it is. Can you, can you hear or no? You're raising your hand, Bob, or I can't? Yeah, go ahead. I can't hear you. Go ahead. Give it a shot. No, I'm not coming through. Is your volume up? Can you, can you, is your, is your microphone on? Go ahead. I think I, I think I hear you. I hear something. I don't know if it's you or not, Bob. No. Hmm. Well, I have to move on. Sorry about that, Bob. Apologize, but you know, into what happened there. So anyway, the, the whole point here is that Satan convinces Adam and Eve that God is not good and not trustworthy, and that is what we deal with still today. The root of sinfulness, the root of, of evil, a moral evil, is that God can't be trusted. That God really isn't good. And that becomes the nature of of sin itself. So now. They eat, they grasp for what is not theirs. They eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and sin and death enter the world. So what God did not want now enters the world through a free-willed decision. So God could have created them as little robots, their own thing, you know, being forced to follow God's will. But God is not interested in puppets. He's not a divine puppeteer, you know. He wants to have people that respond to him in love as he lavishes love upon us. That's how that operates. But even after they sin, before God even curses the ground and curses the serpent, he promises them a savior. But he says to Eve, he says, the serpent will strike at your heel, meaning her progeny will, while you strike at his head. So we put everything between, between your seed and the serpent's seed. It's a very interesting comment, by the way, there. To say her seed. In the ancient world, the seed was always from the man, not the woman. So when God says to Eve, your seed, it's almost a foreshadowing of the virgin birth. There will be no male who will be the one carrying on the seed, meaning Jesus, who will strike at the heel the head, rather, of the serpent. Now, the interesting is, if a poisonous serpent strikes at your heel and bites you, you're going to die from the poison. But striking a serpent's head, rather than its body or its tail, crushing his head, you kill the serpent. It is precisely because the serpent, Satan, strikes at the heel of Christ and kills him if the serpent's head is crushed. That's what happens on Good Friday.
through death, Jesus conquers death. But once they're banished from Eden, Adam and Eve, and by the way, their banishment really isn't a punishment. When they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they now have entered into a realm of death. They are both of them are going to die and live separated from God. If at that point they go to the tree of life, meet from that tree, they're now locked in forever. Separation from God. So the banishment actually is to protect them from immortality apart from God. And the tree of life becomes the Eucharist, becomes the, tree, the, the cross, and its fruit becomes the Eucharist and the sacraments. So it's all this God working things out in the very beginning. But it's kind of rough for a while for the Israelites. Things aren't so great. You know, they end up in Egypt, 400 years of slavery, definitely a rough period for them. They leave Egypt, it's been 40 years wandering in a desert. Leave the desert, and they end up now in Canaan. And you have the exiles, and you have the judges, and you have all these really brutal periods, you know, that went on into history until finally Christ comes. Thomas Aquinas uh, asks the question, you know, why did God wait thousands of years to save his people? Why not after Eden just kind of come down to earth, set it all right, and then, you know, we're good here. Why does he wait? And Thomas answers it. Thomas says, look, God waited to show us that we cannot save ourselves, that we need to have something from the outside come in and save us. We are incapable of saving ourselves. The example I use is this. All of us are born into a world that is poisoned by sin. Every single one of us. Our original sin, actual sin, structural sin, it's everywhere around us. We are incapable, therefore, of extricating ourselves from that type of situation. So God brings one from the outside who is not affected and infected by sin to save those who are affected by it. The metaphor is this. If a child is raised in a household with addiction and abuse, it's almost a iron lock that kid will be raised up and become abusive themselves addicted themselves unless somebody from the outside not from that family or that household enters into the picture and removes that child from that environment then they have a fighting chance that's what jesus does for us we're in the world still it's true but christ comes through baptism gives us the grace to help us peter go ahead like I said, I did drug counseling for like over 10 years. Oh, wow. So the, whole, the whole thing was is that they had hit rock bottom. And mm -hmm. parents don't let their children hit rock bottom. They enable them. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is true. It's very difficult for a parent to let their children hit rock bottom. You know, they usually have to kick their kids out of the house. Yeah. So they don't have a roof over their head and so forth. And children steal from their parents. They, they steal from everybody they know. They lie and stuff to enable their drug problem. So right. they take someone from the outside, whether to put their child in prison 
and so forth to force the child to get help. Yeah, yeah. Listen, it's true. I had a cousin of mine who was uh, his, his, his father, my uncle, who died before I was even kind of old enough uh, to know, know him at all. But he was an alcoholic, a drug addict, and like, both my cousins ended up with those problems. Both of them got help, got clean, they're fine, thank God. But it's almost a guarantee that if you're raised in that kind of an environment, it's going to affect you. How could it not affect you, frankly? So Jesus comes in and he helps to remove us from that, or at least show us the way to be removed from that environment to help us to be able to go forward with freedom and some sense of capacity to be able to not be so um, infected or affected by what we see. But one of the great books, Old Testament literature, wisdom literature, and helps us with the question of suffering is the book of Job. Job is a fantastic book when it comes to the question of suffering. To give a little recap of the book, I already know it, but we're going to recap here. Job is this you know wealthy man, livestock family, a lot of kids, wife, house, riches, the whole thing. And Satan says to God, the only reason why Job is faithful is because Job is blessed by you. But the minute your blessings are withdrawn, Job is going to curse you. And God says, okay, you know what? I'm giving you a free reign over him. You can't kill him. But anything else you want to do to him, I'm letting it happen. I'm allowing it to happen, so to speak. And it does. Livestock killed. Children die. Riches gone. He ends up sitting on a dunghill outside the city gates. From you know, the penthouse to the outhouse. And he's, you know, this is a, like the worst possible case of poor Job. And his friends are saying to him, Job, just confess your sin. God punishes sin. If you sin, just confess it, and God will be over with it. Just confess it. And Job is saying to them, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm a good guy. What did this happen to me? His wife, his faithful, devoted wife, says, Job, just curse God and die. Well, thanks, honey. It's really sweet, you know? <laughs> so poor Job is in a real rough spot here. So he doesn't know why this is happening. He can't make sense of it all. Couldn't figure out why is God doing this? And the book ends where Job in the desert is calling out to God. You know, God, why is this happening? Why are you doing this? I don't understand this. And God in a whirlwind appears to him. And God says to him, Job, when I created the world, were you here? And Job says, well, no, you're right. When I separate light from darkness, were you here? And Job says, um, no. And God says, right. I'm God. And you're not to so trust me, Job. And then, of course, Job gets back everything you've lost a hundredfold. But the point of the book is this. God never gives an answer. All God says to Job is, you have to trust me in the midst of what you're going through. And that, that is a very difficult thing for us to understand because it doesn't make sense a lot of times, right? And Jesus himself dealt with the questions of, of doubt, of pain, of, of concern, of angst. You know, when you sweat blood, actually, actually a little medical condition, you're, you're, you're so stressed that your capillaries burst 
and your sweat and blood mingle together. Actually, can happen, but I really, I'm not sure that's true or not. But that's what I heard that under extreme duress that can take place. Well, according to Luke, who was a doctor in the Garden of Gethsemane. He recounts it that Jesus sweat blood. So he is, you know, on Holy Thursday night. Jesus is not like in good spirits here. He's 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 terrified. He sees the nails. He sees the crown of thorns. He sees the whips. He sees the, the scourging. And he prays, if it's possible, God, Father, let this cup pass from me. If it's, if, if, if it's, please, if it's your will, let it, be, let it happen. And we, we sentimentalize it. We put holy cards up. Oh, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it sweet? Isn't it nice? He was terrified that night. He's there probably prostrate on the ground against Gethsemane, begging his father, if it's possible, please, please, some other way. What's his answer at the end? But your will, Father, not mine be done. He's scared, but he trusts. And he trusts the whole way to the cross. Everything he does on Good Friday, he allows to happen to him. When Jesus says to Caiaphas, I can call down a hundred angels to come and save me. He's not kidding. He could do that. He wanted to. But he doesn't. Because the world would not be saved that way. And because Christ walks the way of suffering, he sanctifies it. Everything Jesus does, he sanctifies. Suffering itself is sanctified by Christ. It has meaning. It has purpose now when it comes to us. Nothing in his life is an accident. St. Paul has a line in, first, in, in uh, Colossians 1.24. It's a cryptic line. And Paul writes as Paul writes, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Colossians 1.24. Now, at first glance, that's blasphemous. What is possibly lacking in Christ's afflictions? Because in one sense, nothing is perfect. But at a deeper level, what's lacking is our participation, our sharing in Christ's own sufferings. Because the reality is suffering comes to every single one of us. No one escapes the cross. No one. And we shouldn't want to escape it. Because the cross sanctifies us. It breaks us sometimes. It can be horrible sometimes. But the cross allows us to grow in sanctification. But also remember, whatever cross we have, we all have our crosses in life for sure. Whatever cross we have, we never carry it alone unless we choose to carry it alone. Christ wants to carry it with us. We have to invite Christ into that suffering, into that cross, in a bizarre paradox of logic and philosophy. Jesus is attracted to our woundedness. The thing we find about ourselves most despicable, most upsetting, most disgusting, Christ is most attracted to. Because he wants to go there. 
and bring light to what is dark. In the Gospels, when Christ heals lepers, not from afar, not from a distance, and God, you're healed, go to see the priest, go ahead, see you guys. No, no, no. He goes up to them, covered in sores and blood and pus and just gross. And he embraces them. He embraces them and he heals them. There are times when our sinfulness, our struggles, our sufferings are disgusting and gross. Leprosy of a spiritual kind. Yet Christ goes right there. And that's how Jesus accompanies us on the path of suffering in life as all of us encounter it. We don't encounter it. We don't suffer it alone. Very important for us to think about that. You know, during the whole uh, COVID first wave back in April, I preached on Good Friday. I had the, the, the service on Good Friday. In the homily, talking about what was going on in the world at that time period, and it was the first wave, and it was, it was horrible. And you know, we see Jesus on the cross, hanging there, gasping to breathe, struggling for breath, unable to get his breath back to him under pain and duress and struggling to breathe. Those people today in the ICU, in the hospital, who are struggling to breathe themselves, racked with pain themselves, Jesus is right there at that bedside with them because he knows what it feels like to be racked with pain, struggling to breathe. On the cross he was. There was nothing we go through that Jesus himself did not go through first. He knows it, he gets it. But wisdom, talking about this Christmas coming up in a few weeks, wisdom will say in the Advent readings, they are beautiful during Advent, that the, the word leapt down from heaven, not stepped down, not came down, he leaped, he leaped down in active action because Christ wanted to get right in the middle of the whole mess of our life with its suffering and its struggling and its pain and its sorrow. He leaps down to us to help us in the midst of what we go through. And boy, oh boy, when it happens, you experience that peace, that peace of Christ in the midst of all of it. It is. It's amazing. And how Christ prepares us for those moments. Now, suffering also divests us of the lie that we're God. That is one of the major lies we make. And the root of every mortal sin, especially, is the lie that I'm God. I got it. I'm on it. Suffering tells us, not somebody, you ain't God. All right? You're suffering, you're struggling, you can't handle it, you ain't God. All right? Deal with it. So it reminds us of that. In suffering often, we are utterly hopeless, utterly helpless in those moments. God isn't hopeless. God isn't helpless. But in suffering, occasionally, well, what the heck, we are. And even the saints experience this. We think of Francis of Assisi, the great Saint Francis, who, you know, can't take off his clothing in the middle of the street because of his, his, realiz his, his realization of, of the, the riches are nothing. That the rags, the poor, the suffering of Christ, when he wants to embrace. We think of the great St. Ignatius Loyola. St. Ignatius Loyola, founder of the Jesuits, we don't hold up against him. St. Ignatius um, 
Ignatius was a soldier. He was a man of, of he wasn't living in the castle for God's sake. You know, wealthy, powerful. His whole life was becoming like, becoming a soldier and gaining you know, getting a beautiful wife and, and, and riches and power and prestige and all that kind of stuff. And a cannonball, one afternoon, changes his life and the church's life forever. It breaks his leg and he ends up at home to convalesce, reading through all the books he had on soldiers and gallantry and knights and damsels and all that kind of good stuff. And he realizes after a couple of months or so, his leg isn't healing properly. So what do they have to do? They re-break his leg before anesthesia. Can you imagine? Now, now he has to heal again. But now his books run out. All that he has left, Life of the Saints, Life of Christ. He's like, well, I'm bored. Netflix isn't here yet. So I gotta figure something to do, you know? So he begins to read. Lies of the Saints. He begins to read about life of Christ. And it inspires him. And what he realizes is, when I read about knights and damsels and King Arthur and all that kind of stuff, it was good. I enjoyed it. Afterwards, it kind of left me. It was kind of just, whatever, a good book. But when I read about the life of Christ or lives of the saints, afterwards, I feel this sense of, of, of joy, of peace, of meaning. And he begins to realize the whole idea of the discernment of spirits, which has influenced the church for 500 years. He becomes a great saint, founds the Jesuits, becomes a great, you know, doctor, not Dr. George, becomes a great, uh, great leader of, of, of the community of his time period. Incredible. But suffering, suffering brought him to realize the need for God, the need to follow Christ more closely. God uses it all. And there's a particular care that Jesus has toward the poor, the marginalized, those most vulnerable. He says in Matthew 25, sheep and the goats, right? Lord, when were you naked or hungry or thirsty or a stranger or in prison? And Jesus says to them, for the least of them, you did it for me. Identifying himself with the most marginalized, with the most vulnerable. You can add to that the poor, the sick, the unborn, the terminally ill, the dying, those today who are deemed as not worthy of life, not worthy of dignity, not worthy of personhood. To all of that, Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm here. I'm part of this all the way to the cross. Following Christ will not alleviate the feeling of pain, but it removes the illusion of its uselessness. One who suffers well can save souls. John, go ahead. You're on mute. Father, as I was reading the assignment, that's one of the questions I had is the whole idea of redemptive suffering. How does that make sense in the last little bit of your life? I mean, I can understand, you know, someone breaking their leg or... But when you're in those last moments, um, I didn't understand how it made sense okay. that, from that standpoint. You know, a story may help to illustrate this point. Um, there's a story about a, a sister, a nun, actually, who was a very saintly woman, a woman of great devotion, great faith. And as she was dying, last you know, days of her life were just horrible. Pain, 
just just awful, and they couldn't do anything for her. And the sister said to her, "I don't, you know, sister, I don't understand. You are so holy, you are so pious. Why are you dying so horribly?" And her answer was, "So a person who is evil can die well." Applying her suffering to a soul in need of conversion at the last moment. Up until the very end, it's possible to unite our suffering to that of Jesus. So in life, John, you're right. Many opportunities in life to unite our cross to the Christ cross. But even in those last moments, especially perhaps in the last moments, when we do feel the pain of, of the end of life coming upon us, pain of illness, pain of whatever the case may be, perhaps then more than ever before, is the chance for us to unite our pain, our crosses, our sufferings to Christ. Suffering is not useless. It can have great use, actually, if applied for the salvation of souls. It's a mystery in some sense, but it is part of the whole idea of the communion of saints. You know, we're not living in an isolated environment with a body of Christ, a unified entity. We're not islands of Christ, with a body of Christ. We're one. And because of that, we can each help out each other in a symbiotic relationship. So my suffering, my pain, my struggle can apply for somebody else. When I fast, I fast for myself or I fast for some kind of a good cause or some kind of an important thing. And the little pain that I feel in fasting reminds me of my need for God, my need for conversion. It all kind of works together here. And it's, it's so important for us to uh, be attentive to that. And the question today, because we're so, we're so averse to suffering, we're so averse to the idea of any kind of pain at all, that um, it will, a lot of sense that perhaps. Peter, you had a question or just? No, I was gonna say that it's like the two-edged sword. Um, basically, if you live your life following Jesus' footsteps and your family or friends know that, and yet they see you suffering, they may perceive it as, well, he wasn't being taken care of. Mm -hmm. So yep. why should I follow his footsteps when I'm going to suffer anyway? Yeah. Well, I think it's a good point. Mm -hmm. People perceive it as, like you said, suffering for other people's sins. Why should you get? Why should I follow your footsteps if it's going to cause me pain and suffering? I think it's a matter of how you act during that suffering. Right, John Paul II, as powerful as he was in his young life and life of, of his vivaciousness and his early papacy, in his last years with Parkinson's, slumped over, there was something about him teaching us how to die that was profound in a certain sense. So I think how you, how you embrace that. You know, a person who is not a believer who is suffering from cancer or some kind of other disease and is bitter and angry and, and just filled with, with a sense of hopelessness at the end of their life compared to the Christian who dies, same kind of thing, but embracing that suffering, dying with the peace about them, same pain, same, same struggle, but you see one 
who dies with anger and vitriol and one who dies with grace. That's, there's a difference there. And that can speak volumes to other people perhaps about what the difference, difference that Christ makes, frankly, when you suffer with him in those moments. Other comments or questions? This is kind of a heavy topic tonight, I know, but it's important. All right. So, you know, all of us, the question of suffering and, and dealing with, with, with difficult situations, people oftentimes struggle with this. But they'll say, you know, a person who's dying, whether it be a parent or a spouse or a sibling or whatever, will say those last days, last hours even, Lord, please just take them. You know, and they feel sometimes guilt-ridden about that. Am I wrong to pray that? Am I wrong to want them to die after what they've been going through? And of course not. Of course not. That's a, as a human empathy of seeing someone we love who is suffering. Someone we love who is going through pain and, and, and all kinds of agony. And as a human being, we desire to, to help them to kind of just pass in this world to the next. We don't live for this world. Now, Paul is clear that our citizenship is in heaven. As Paul writes, we have here no lasting city. Our eyes are not focused on this world, but on the next. And it's important for us to be aware of that. Also critical for us to realize that someone's worth, someone's dignity, of course, we know this, is not based on how useful they are. And what a challenge that is in today's world. It's a whole utilitarian ethic. This ethic of if you're young and you're healthy and you're articulate and you're smart, then you have value, then you have worth. But, you know, as you get older, not so sharp anymore, or you're not so healthy anymore, or whatever, then your worth isn't quite what it used to be. And that is the paradigm that our world currently works through and currently has. And it is terrible that we live in a world that is so caught up in this sense of utilitarianism, of not viewing every human life with the dignity and the grace that each one of us, by the very nature of our, of our being human, that we share that. So important for us to be aware of it. Now, all that being said, when it comes to the issue of dying, I don't have to do everything to prolong someone's life. Right. Yeah, go ahead, George. Like you, like you were just saying before about praying, you know, praying for someone to pass mm -hmm. on. Like I said, I think last class, um, you know, with my mom, you know, when they we removed all the machines around two o'clock, um, you know, and the doctor said that, you know, she would be gone within the hour, you know, and, you know, 1134 is when she passed. Um, but at one point I was, I was praying, you know, that God would take her that to relieve her suffering because she had suffered with COPD mm. for 50 years. Yeah. Um, and I remember my sisters being there and my dad and, um, you know, when, when my mom, you know, expired, passed on, they all, you know, got emotional and uh, I almost felt relieved. 
um, to the extent that, you know, she was at peace and that's what she deserved. You know, like she deserved that. I'm not to say I didn't grieve after the, but it, at the moment, um, God gave me that strength, um, you know, to, to get through it, to be there supportive for my father, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, for him to have lost, you know, my mom, his wife, for the, you know, they were, they were together for 50 years. Um, you know, and I remember it was, you know, Christmas, Christmas time oh. and I coming, coming home and telling my wife, <laughs> I said, whatever is up in the house is staying up. I said, mm-hmm. so basically put the nativity up and call it a day. Um, and basically that's, that's what it was. Like you kind of, um, I guess you kind of realize what's more important in life. Like it's not even, even with COVID it's all, it's not all the materialistic things. It's, it's between you and God and, and your family. Um, like even now they're saying, you know, like for Thanksgiving, you know, um, you know, don't go, you know, don't have 20 or 30 people in and yeah, make it simple. Bring, I think we got to bring it back before we can go out again. Yeah. Yeah. Great, 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 great point. And I think that you're so right about that. And also it shows, George, that, you know, for the believer, we face death in a different kind of way. You know, yesterday's second reading spoke to this. You know, St. Paul says, we do not mourn as the rest who have no hope. Right. Huge difference. Huge difference. Definitely. And I've seen it. I've seen it in funerals where their family's unchurched or whatever, and they're there wondering, you know, what energy has my loved one become, you know, converted into? Or, or they're oh, just, just gone now. Whereas the believer looks at death and it's painful. And we grieve as we have to. We should. You know, blessed they were born. We have to mourn. But at the same time, we don't grieve as if we have no hope. Which is why the church's liturgy, the preface for funerals is beautiful. It reminds us, Lord, for your faithful, life is changed, not ended. Definitely. And that is the hope we bring with us. That's why the point they make right now, actually, is in the case of a person who's terminally ill or end-of-life issues, we do not have to do everything to prolong their life. In fact, in some ways, it's against charity to do that. Now, again, the basic things, you know, food, water, all that stuff are obligatory. Absolutely. But we don't have to do everything. And it's not passive euthanasia. We do that as long as we're doing this and actively kill them, obviously. But... We can withdraw certain things. We can give certain medications that will cause them to be at peace or be, or be at less pain, but doesn't cause directly their death. The church does not value suffering for the simple sake of suffering. In fact, the church desires as much as we can to alleviate suffering through medicine, through palliative care, through analgesics, through all those things that can help a person be alleviated from the pain that comes from some of these diseases, some of these traumas, some of these illnesses. So it's important for us to realize that for the church's perspective on it, morphine, oxycodone, hydromorphone, others can be administered as long as they're administered carefully 
Now, in hospice care, the nurses, healthcare professionals, are trained to distinguish between respiratory depression caused by drugs and shallow breathing, which comes at the end of life. However, there are times that when a nurse or a healthcare professional is perhaps a little too quick to minister that powerful hit of morphine that ends someone's life or, you know, again, I'm not a doctor. So I don't want to speak out of, my, out of my competency here. But it seems some of you here that I talked about this, you've experienced stuff like that. But the church itself does not have any problem. The catechism, paragraph 2276, 2276, paragraph says, catechism says, that those whose lives are diminished or weakened deserve special respect and palliative care as a special form of disinterested charity that should be encouraged. So 2276, 2279 of the catechism. And we should be attentive to those that are going through the experiences of end of life and some of the pain and distress that can come from those situations. Now, Pius XII, Pius XII was the first to speak about this in a real um, doctrinal way. Pius spoke about everything, and he did about this as well. And Pius um, said that pain medication for terminally ill is totally appropriate, even if life may be shortened as a result. Not ended as a result, but shortened as a result. So it's one thing to give someone, you know, oxycodone or morphine that helps to alleviate the pain, but doesn't directly cause their death. It is different to give someone a lethal dose, essentially, of that, which could, in fact, end their life. So that's the distinction there. But even if, let's say a person is, has a week to live, for argument's sake, and the morphine you give them means they're going to live for four days instead of seven days, not euthanasia. It's a way of, of, of alleviating their pain, but it's going to attrite life, not end life. It's a very different situation. John Paul II, in Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life is major encyclical on life and the, God, and the culture of life, wrote this. In such a case, use of painkillers and sedatives, death is not willed or sought, even though for reasonable motives one runs the risk of it. There is simply a desire to ease pain effectively by using the analgesics which medicine provides. Paragraph 65, Vigilium Vitae. What John Paul II is saying there, again, is death is not sought. By the end of life, certain painkillers, certain sedatives, will in fact cause a person to die more quickly. But it is not the same thing as giving an overdose of morphine or an injection of sodium chloride, God forbid, you know, something of that nature. So, like, that's what we're talking about here. It's a very different situation. But it is important for us to realize that in those cases where a person is suffering, 
that it's proportional to understand that the elimination of pain is appropriate in those situations. We seek to alleviate the pain that is there. This is critical. Most people look at the church's teaching on this and think we want to make them suffer. Well, offer it up. Too bad for you. No, of course not. God forbid we should say that. So it's important for us to have a sense of this. Because when people come and make these arguments and say these things, they don't know what they're talking about. They're speaking completely out of their competency, thinking that we want people to suffer. Of course, it's not ever our intention. Uh, Questions or comments about any of that so far? That makes sense, everybody? Everybody? Yeah, Peter, go ahead. Just basically, like you said, people don't know what they're talking about, but whose fault is that? It's a church. (laughs) You're educated. True. No, it's very true. In fact, prior to COVID, uh, my, the intention of my parish where I live was to have me give a whole presentation on this exact topic at the parish. Because people don't know a lot about this. Or if they do know about it, it's caricature. So, as an aside, for us to put it out there, perhaps after the COVID situation, I'd be more than happy to visit any parish and give an evening presentation on end-of-life issues with Q&A afterwards. So, I'm available, I'm out there, that's what I do. So I'm happy to um, talk about it. Usually I'm thinking about vocations. I have to get a break from that for a change, show something else. Um, so just, there you go. Um, in fact, last year, for a young adult group, we did a whole teaching on beginning of life issues. Which kind of makes, that, that, that's next week, talk about that. But um, yeah, all these things are on people's minds and their hearts and they're confused and they don't know what the teaching is. So, Peter, your point is well, is well taken, man. We don't talk about this enough. And oftentimes, when we do, it's like esoteric, it's very up in the ether. So, I am happy to come to a place and give a presentation on this if you uh, have any kind of need for that or want me to come to. I'd be happy to, to visit. But back to our class tonight. Um, the real great struggle for us, one of the greatest struggles today, is what do we do with a person who is not dying? but has suffered a traumatic brain injury with with impaired cognitive ability, okay? This is a person in a persistent vegetative state. Although, even more accurately, we can say that they are suffering persistent cognitive affective deprivation. That's a mouthful, right? So, if if I use that, it's fine. Persistent cognitive Effective deprivation. These people lack self-awareness or and or the ability to reason or communicate. So they lack self-awareness or the ability to reason or to communicate. Okay? Normally what happens here, either a stroke or a traumatic brain injury of some sort that has caused oxygen to be deprived from the brain for a period of time. After passage of minutes, the brain begins to actually deprivation because they have serious damage that can be irreversible. So we have a couple of terminology here to use for a person in this state. What we should never say is a very common statement. That person is a vegetable. No, they're not. No one is ever a vegetable. 
that language at best is misleading and at worst is dehumanizing. And remember, when we dehumanize somebody, anything goes. Anything can be allowed. Very, very important for us. Now, we realize that self-awareness, cognitive capacity, although important and essential elements of the human person do not in themselves, when functioning properly, constitute personhood. In other words, being conscious, being cognitively, being smart, don't constitute person. If they did, then a person unconscious who lacks self-awareness at that moment would cease to be human. Anybody asleep who is unconscious would for that eight hours, seven hours, five hours, whatever it would be, would not be human until they're they're awakened. Self-awareness, cognition, and consciousness, although essential, do not define personhood. People have those things. They're essential, but they don't make us persons. Now, this is very important because there's a whole movement out there now that defines dignity and worth to live based on how smart you are, how aware you are, how cognitively capable you are. So, Peter Singer, professor at a Princeton University, for years, Peter Singer has said, well, the reality is a high-functioning chimpanzee has more right to life than a severely mentally handicapped human. That should terrify us. To imagine that that's what a person could, and he's serious. Read books about this. He has, you know, students in class who believe this now. That a high-functioning ape has more dignity than a mentally handicapped child or human or anybody for that reason. That is a terrifying proposition. The reality is, animals, despite how smart they may be in some case, lack any kind of self-awareness. A chinchilla does not have introspection. Okay, a your your house cat, your gerbil doesn't know the environment it lives in and be part of a, a larger picture. You know, when an animal is dying, even a house pet, what do they do? Well, for a small corner of the house, as comfortable, as quiet, as kind of hidden, to go and die. So then, there's no sense of afterlife, no sense of eternity. So they don't have that same sense. But even if we, as a human person, because of some kind of injury or trauma, lacks self-awareness or introspection, deprivation, all we should possess, it is not something they don't have at all. They lack it because of an injury or whatever. It's amazing, you know, working with, with handicapped people, Down syndrome, children or whatever, there is a capacity for love that these kids have, it's wild. And you see it. I mean, I don't know what it is, but I will tell you, working with them, it's it's like, I can't even get it explained. It's, it's beautiful, really. 
And um, the reality is more and more, um, this generation will not know what Down syndrome is. Because 90% of all neonatal Down syndrome diagnoses don't make it to life. 90% of them and an abortion. Actually, Father, in uh, Poland in October, because of COVID, they used emergency acts to actually outlaw the abortion of malformed fetuses. Really? Caused wow. huge riots in Poland. And it's, it's that. Right. Yeah. God help us. Yeah. It's really, it's amazing. The riots over this, you know, I just, yeah. I mean, I don't know. The whole issue of like, well, next week we're talking about abortion next week. I don't want to give, uh, give the whole lesson away about abortion, a part of lesson at least. I'm writing the paper on it so you can talk about it, please. <laughs> no, but the whole question, especially today, of you know, late term abortion and, and stuff like that, good heavens. I mean, it just to me it's it's barbaric, frankly. And um we're gonna discuss next week in more detail the arguments for abortion. What is that to defend abortion? How do we respond to those arguments? One of the best things to do to be able to respond to our critics is to learn what they say and why they say it and how they say it. That allows us to be able to respond, not to straw men, but to real arguments and see what works and what doesn't work. Now, others today will say that supplying food and water to a person in a vegetative state is a medical treatment and therefore is extraordinary in nature. They reject the fact that it is obligatory for anybody. So the point is, listen, food and water are medical treatments. Therefore, a person in vegetative state can be denied food and water because it's medical. It's extraordinary. It's not a obligatory or necessary element for the person. This is a real serious problem. There are times, rare times, when the withdrawal of food and water is appropriate. For example, at the very end, the very end of someone's life, when the food or water, the, the, the tube or the whatever they put in to minister it is painful, is, is, a, is uh, not beneficial, and the person is going to die of what they have. The question is this. Will they die of their disease or starvation or dehydration? If they're going to die because I removed food and water, that becomes death dealing. It's different than a person at the end of their life who will die in a couple of days and a roll of food and water won't kill them, but they have. to feed yourself or give yourself water hydration is a fatal pathology and therefore you can withdraw those things because they're extraordinary if not being able to feed yourself or give yourself water is a fatal pathology then every infant has a fatal pathology two-year-olds one-year-olds who can't 
do that yet at Fatal Pathologies, it is absolutely essential for us to realize that these things are essential. They are obligatory. And every person, by virtue of being a person, deserves them. Now, it's also important to realize, looking at this, that when people are saying these things, to withdraw food and water, they will couch it like this. Well, all I want to do is alleviate someone's pain by ending their life or by giving them you know, less days of suffering. But that in itself is a laudable thing. Because the person's suffering and they're suffering, I get it. Not a bad thing in and of itself. But again, the intention is not the determining factor. What is? Not intention, but the result. Not the result, but the there's been a no. It's double effect. Well it is in this per- you're right, Anthony, but remember it's object. What's actually being done relative to reason? The intention may be to withdraw food and water to end their life quicker or more, more expediently, but the object is removing hydration, removing nutrition, which will be death dealing for that person. If they're innocent, if they're helpless, and is death dealing by definition, murder. So it's very important for us to be really clear on these issues and see how um, how difficult these cases are. Now, Hello, Chris, yeah, I just say one thing. So I'm on the palliative care team at uh, at the VA in the Bronx, and um, and you know the, the situation is is that I. I you know, I really don't feel that in any circumstance that either hydration nor nutrition should be held from a person that is either DNR, DNI, or, you know, in a vegetative state. Only because I know for a fact, and I dealt with this with my own parents, is that, you know, that's no way to die. Um, it is certainly not um, extraordinary to put an NG tube in for feeding or a peg in for feeding mm-hmm. a percutaneous uh, gastrostomy tube or put an IV in for hydration, which is very simple to do, um, you know, to prevent people from dying in, mm-hmm. you know, in some horrific way, especially yeah. from, you know, someone from, you know, from the medical field, like holding, you know, nutrition and hydration. The other side of the coin is, is that, we don't know, um, even with EEG recordings, if people are, you know, what their awareness is, you know, despite, you know, how unconscious they are. So you can do EEGs and you can say there's minimal brain activity, but you don't know what the perception of the person who is unconscious is. You know, you don't know what they perceive. You don't know what they feel. You don't know anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, withholding things, you know, whether it be pain control, whether it be um, <clears throat> nutrition, hydration, whatever, um, is really, you know, is really, a, you know, that's a, it's a slippery slope. And, um, you know, since, you know, since I've been, unfortunately, because of COVID, you know, in, in our program, the third and the fourth years are really not going to have the ability to rotate on, you know, on palliative care teams or in nursing homes. 
So, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, we have to really, you know, think about, um, you know, when it's one of your loved ones goes, and I said this before, it goes into a hospital and they're pushing a DNR, you know, that's an a la carte menu. You have to specifically decide, you know, what you want and what you don't want. And a lot of times it's not clear, you know, for, for days and days and days, what you want and what you don't want. But I can tell you from my experience as a physician and doing this for 30 years and, you know, and dealing with, you know, my own family members, that certainly, you know, withholding nutrition and hydration is not something that I feel, and this is my personal opinion, and I'm not trying to hijack anything that anyone else says, but, you know, that withholding nutrition and hydration is just wrong. I have a, I have a comment. Uh, I want to ask you, is it legitimate or, or, or moral for the patient to say, I don't want um, food or I don't want hydration or both? Is that, is that possible or, or, or are they committing suicide? Well, the patient obviously has the ability to, um, they're able to. They have autonomy. Think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as a doctor, you have to respect their autonomy from a moral yeah, point of view. If, if, yeah. if that patient has advanced directives and you follow those advanced that's yeah. easy. That makes yeah. it very simple. But unfortunately, you know, I'll have patients that, that come in well, John, with, John, you know, with... I think John's question, though, is the person themselves says to you they yeah. want to have it withdrawn. Is that suicide? Is it moral for, the, for a patient exercising their own autonomy to say I want you to withhold food or water or both are you committing suicide or are you just exercising your autonomy and you're going to die um, you know yeah well that's a hard it's a hard one John it really is I mean in some sense I mean you're you're choosing what do you think Anthony to be, yeah I mean Opinion, Anthony, from two doctors here. So, I, so you know, advanced. So, when patients come in with advanced no, directives, no advanced directive, no advanced directive. That's well, easy. it has to be advanced directives because you know it has to be the patient's wishes well, that I follow. No, I come into the hospital and I'm dying, obviously. And you come to me and you say, "Well, we're going to give you food and water because we have to do that." And no, no, I don't want water or food. Where's your advanced directive that you written? I don't have one. Okay, so so if you're telling me that you don't want food and water, those are your wishes, and I abide by them. Yeah. And you just so, so, so the patient's autonomy supersedes and overrides the otherwise morality that someone would be. Uh, imposing it on them absolutely no. because you're dealing you're not de- you're dealing with the secular world now you know so if I don't abide by your wishes and your family members know that I don't abide by your wishes mm-hmm. then I could be you know brought up on you know on charges through the hospital that I'm forcing therapy that you didn't want but that's also you can't withhold food and water from a from a church moral theology point of view, which is what kind of what the kind of issue is in terms of our question here tonight, I think John that it is a type of suicide. You're choosing to be to be to purposely not take something which 
will otherwise, by not, not taking it, it's going to end your life. I mean, that's, that's just, and there's, you know, so I don't see how you can justify that. Uh, so then does the doctor have to go along with those wishes of a person who is actually committing suicide? Because the church says you cannot withhold food or water. Right. But Anthony's point, though, is that if you go into the hospital and you're... It's a conundrum. The, the doctor's caught between a, a rock you know, and a hard you place. Like you're causing a real problem in terms of not being able to you know, follow their wishes. Right. So, Going back to that example, suppose the patient knows he's going to die in a week or two weeks and he's afraid. And he goes, don't give me food and water. And now he knows he's dying. Is that right. Um, dying? Um, this is so, so here's another issue. So here's another issue. And, and, I, and I run into this all the time. Person comes in with a big neck mask, you know, and says, you know what? I know I got this mask. I don't want anything done. Um, okay, fine. So, but, you know, let, let's make the diagnosis. Let's see what's going on. And then let's talk about exactly what, you know, what's, what's transpiring here. So you make the diagnosis. You tell them, okay, you've got this tumor, blah, blah, blah. Here are all the horrible things that can happen. You know what, doc? I got it. Don't want to deal with it. Leave me alone. Okay, fine. No problem. They leave the hospital. They sign a DNR. They leave the hospital. They come back four, five, six weeks later. They're gasping for breath. They are in, you know, horrible shape. And all of a sudden, you get called, you know, whenever. And they now rescind their DNR. Because now, because things are horrible, they can't breathe, they can't exist. Now they want everything done. And that's okay. I get it. However... You know, once you once you put the airway in and they're good, you know, then they're free to decide, you know, what they want step by step, little by little. You can't, you know, what I keep what I counsel patients all the time on a DNR or any type of withholding of treatment. It's not a gestalt thing. When they come in, when you come in, you have to decide again what you want, you know, during that admission. And and that may change over multiple admissions, you know, and and it may change when when you have a healthcare proxy that you identify. And then as time goes on, they're going to know what things they're going to have to withhold, whether it be intubation, dialysis, anything, you know, uh, pressors, whatever it is, you know, that, you know, that it's, you know, it's up to. You know, the patient, it's up to the patient's family members, and it's up to the physician, the palliative care team, and anyone else that's involved with them to be able to come to a consensus of what is the best thing to do for this patient during their last stages of existence. Anthony, if, if there's a case where a patient comes in with the DNR on their, on their directives, and they uh, are going to be able to be, if they're on the ventilator for a couple of days, they can recover a little bit or come back to health a little bit. Can the proxy of that person say, look, I know the DNR is there, but it's not going to be an eternal thing here. Can they at least be given ventilator for a couple of days? Or is that DNR on the form, like, law? How does that, what's the policy on that? No, so so if if, if that's the case where, you know, the prop, so if the patient needs, you know, temporary ventilation, 
um, you know, it's not a problem. It, it, even if so, again, like I said, it, the DNR has to be specifically laid out, but it, it, but it's not hard and fast. It's not a hard and fast rule. Mm-hmm. So if you know, you say at one point in the admission, "Hey, I don't want, I don't want to be intubated. I don't want to, I don't want chest compressions." And then all of a sudden, and you have a healthcare proxy, and all of a sudden, you know, things things happen. The patient codes. Um, it's up to the healthcare proxy to say, you know, you, you know, according to his wishes, he didn't want to be intubated, but I'm rescinding that. Intubate him. Let's see exactly what happens. If things go okay, you know, then you know you go like again. I say it's step by step. It's so hard to try to visualize visualize what's going to happen in patients that are you know terminally ill. What's going to happen you know later down the line. It's, it's, you know, it's a day by day, sometimes hour by hour, you have to make these, these decisions. Right. And, and the important part is that, you know, it has to be made in a group, you know, not, not me as the physician, you know, I can counsel everybody and say, look, these are the things we can do. These are, these are the p- potential outcomes. And, you know, and I want to help your, your, you know, your loved one, you know, I want to do the best my ability to get them to a certain point that they can live, you know, a, you know, a decent life. However, you know, they're, you know, and I don't want to go into the whole secondary gain thing and all kinds of other stuff, because I'm dealing with that now with, you know, some palliative care patients in the hospital. But, you know, you know, at one point, again, you know, the most important thing I can only say here is that, you know, when you're dealing with end of life issues, and you're dealing with, you know, healthcare proxies, you got to counsel them as, to, you know, don't make a decision right away because I'll, I'll give one one quick example. A 20 plus year old guy came in, um, lawyer, um, you know, motorcycle enthusiast, gets hit by a car, becomes a high quad on a ventilator, everything else. He and his brother, they were both engineers. He and his brother decided, you know, uh, came up with some, you know, some thing for the ventilator that he would be able to turn off his ventilator at any point if he decided that he didn't want to live anymore. Now, obviously, uh, you know, when you undergo that kind of trauma, um, you know, you're not in your right mind. You know, you think, I don't want to live like this for the rest of my life. You know, you don't know how much more is going to recover. So, you know, you know, easily it'd be easy for someone to turn around and say you know this is it i'm not living like this let's end it we're done however long story short is that you know the guy was convinced and the brother was convinced look let's see what happens let's give us some time six months later this guy was off the ventilator and he was sitting up in bed so imagine the impact that if this guy would have actually ended his life, you know, at a point where, you know, it, w- it was just way too early. If he didn't have the right counseling and, you know, the right, you know, the, you know, you know, the right people in, in his life that were able to talk him out of it, then, you know, it would have been end of game. So, Anthony, you know, the proxy seems to have quite a bit of a say then over what is done for a, for a, for their person who is giving them this, um, this, this charge over their healthcare situation, if they're not able to make those decisions themselves, is that correct? Right. That's correct. 
No, what happens if the the uh, advanced directive says, you know, they want the withdrawal of food and hydration. You know, they're thinking about that in terms of, you know, I'm dying in two days here. I'm in the hospital, end of life. But they were hit by a car or they take a stroke or they take a fall at home, hit their head. And they're now vegetative state. Their directive says no food, no water. Can the proxy say, listen, I know what they say, but I want them to have this because I don't want them to die from lack of food or water. Is that a reasonable possibility for the proxy to say that? So if the, if, if, if the patient himself has the advanced directive that says no food, no water, no nothing, then you have to abide by what the patient said. The advanced directive makes it very simple for us. Okay. The advanced directive from the patient saying, you know, I don't want this, I don't want that, I don't want the other thing, we have to abide by it, despite what the proxy says. Okay. Can you speak to uh, the distinction between a living will and an advanced directive? Correct. No, there is a distinction between the living will and advanced directive. In, in, in Connecticut, we have a, a living will. And once you put that down in the living will, then it's sort of a blind thing. It's sort of a dumb way of looking at it because then you have to go by the living will. An advanced directive uses uh, something which is in the law called agency. And you can you designate an agent who can who can make judgments for you, and you're supposed to sit down with that agent and inform the agent of your wishes. But then that agent uh, can override that. I'm sorry, I disagree with 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 uh, Anthony. If if the uh, agent uh, uh, feels for any reason that the 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 uh, the uh, situation has changed, then that agent uh, who has the power of agency can, and can act for the patient can change that because he's essentially the patient then. The agent becomes the patient and can I make wonder, it. John, is that a distinction in New York, whereas in, I mean, in Connecticut, whereas in New York, it's different? Yes, New York is agency. And and uh, and Connecticut has living will. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, they're, they're, so very here with, they're very different. Yeah. So here with with agency, if they have an advanced directive, and the patient himself, like, fills out the advanced directive before he goes into the hospital and says he wants these specific things done, then that's it. The proxy, if there, if if he has a proxy, the proxy has to abide by those wishes as we do also. The proxy can change it, though, uh, uh, Anthony. He as has far as power. I know, the proxy he can't. He has the power to change it under certain circumstances. Unless, unless it's changed after the person has become, like, that's, you know, unconscious or unable that, to... That, exactly. That's when he has the power. Exactly oh, right. Okay. Interesting. Right. No, it's an important thing, guys, because even my own parents, you know, I'm, I'm their proxy. And I'm thinking about, you know... Hopefully, we'll come to that. But I want to think about my own, you know. You, you're not. And by them, frankly. You didn't come through. You were, you were Yeah, you know, give me a second here. My, my connection is not great. Oh, I'm going to change to my Wi Fi network. Kind of give me one, one minute. Okay.
Is there a lawyer in the house? Yeah, me. Luke, it's one of my favorite paintings. Yeah, behind you. Yeah, Can't hear you, Lucas. I love I love that painting too. I <laughs> yeah. Check check your text. I'm gonna send you a quick story. Yeah, in the chat. All right. I think I'm back with a better connection now. Hopefully. Um. You're frozen. I'm frozen. Mm-hmm. You're not moving. Now you're back. Now I'm back? Yeah. Can we step back just two or three scenarios ago? Because I don't think I got a clear answer. You may have been giving it, but at one point you froze. Yeah. Because now we've been talking about the civil aspects of, of, of all of this, which, of course, we have to live with being in society. But I want to come back to the moral aspects of it. You You threw out an example at one point about a patient... Uh, who is sick, who says, I do not want food and water. That's it. Don't give me anything else because I'm done with life. I'm going to die. I want to die. Don't administer food and water to me. That's my directive to you. Now, you or me as as, as the caretaker or, or the physician, I guess civilly we would have to obey what he says. Correct. However, what does that do for us now from a Catholic tradition, our so morals? So, working, working in as a chaplain, as you know, the chaplain for a hospital, as the as a deacon or as a priest, walking into that situation and someone says, I don't want food, I don't want water, I want to just die. You can try to counsel them about the dignity of life. Hey, listen, you know, there's life is a beautiful thing and, and, and you know, just try, try to find some way to counsel them to reconsider. If they don't, they don't, and that's the end of the situation. But we have we have no right to obviously go to the nurse say he told me he wants to be you know they have those things of course obviously. But from our point of view, see where we enter the hospital room as an agent of the church and of Christ. So we're going to try to give them the proper advice, the proper counsel that we can. But if they're choosing to do something that's morally wrong or morally um, not appropriate. We can propose, we can impose what the church teaches. So if we do that as best as we can, and they still choose to reject what we're trying to tell them, that's on them, not on us. But at the same time, we would never want to affirm them. Like, well, hey, listen, it's your life. It's been a good long life. You're 85 years old. God bless you. I understand where you're coming from. No, no, no. no that's not, it's not appropriate. But we can affirm the idea of Life is beautiful. You know, I think that you have so much more to give in your, in your own experience here. You know, and that's, you know, kind of simple stuff. And they probably won't, won't buy that. But we have to try to give them something. Yeah, Peter, go ahead. I have a couple of questions I just want to clarify. Sure. What is, I think you mentioned earlier that when people commit suicide, they might not necessarily be thinking clearly. Mm -hmm. So... Therefore, if they do commit suicide, they don't necessarily go to hell, correct? Correct. Second thing is, we talked about previously that if somebody says, you know, don't give me food and water, I want to die, that you said is suicide, correct? In a certain sense, yeah. 
Third, next thing is, suppose I know I'm definitely dying. I have a fatal disease. Call it whatever you want. I know I'm going to die in a week, two weeks, wherever it is. And I say, look, don't give me food and, food and drink. I'm dying anyway. Just don't do it. If that's still considered suicide because it's just a matter of a week or a few days. I'm ending my life earlier. Is that stupid? You, know, you don't. You don't. Well, first of all, you wouldn't die from. I think they that in in a couple of days. But you know, you may think I'm going to die in three days. You may end up dying in three or four weeks. Doesn't well, mean that you know, tells me it's a matter of days. Yeah. Which again, though, matter of days can mean a variety of possibilities. Here's the thing: the food and water, as 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 Anthony mentioned before, can simply be done to give you some kind of comfort. I mean, I can't, you know, the pain of starving to death or, or dehydration to death. I mean, that's got to be brutal. So I always say, if my, just from a comfort standpoint, if you some comfort, not a matter of you living longer, not a matter of you being able to live another five years with fatal disease, it's a matter of giving you some comfort with food and water being administered to you while you're in the hospital. If you still say no, then the answer is no. I still so, so suicide then. It's a hard, it's a hard thing because I mean, okay. in, in one you're sense, you're, you're, in one sense, you are, you are purposefully rejecting what could prolong your life or what could at least give you some elongation of life. At the other side of that coin, how much more do you have to go? It depends on the situation. So, I mean, calling it suicide. I, I, is I think there's an answer to the question. Please. The food yeah. and water is made for your comfort. It's not a medical treatment. It's Correct. not therapy. It's comfort. So you can reject the comfort and die without becoming a, a suicide. See what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not extraordinary. Okay. It's, it's not. It's easy. It's yeah. either your. It's either extraordinary or it's ordinary. Food and water. It's not extraordinary. Uh, that's and, 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 that's, and that's, it's not that's, therapy. It's comfort. For you. Correct. So you can reject the comfort. You can reject the pillow. You can reject the mattress. You're not going to die from rejecting a pillow, John. Please. Yeah, die for no, you. I'm not saying. <laughs> One last question. And I'm about to well, okay, right, okay, right, it's voice in here. So, Rock, had it to say, I'm sorry. Rock, ahead. Yes, in about the residence, why? But I know I'm going to take it because I'm working in a nursing home. If the residents refuse anything, you cannot force them. And Connecticut, if you force them, it's an abuse. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, you can't force, yeah, that's right. You can't force them to do anything they don't want to do. You cannot force them to do anything. You can refuse to eat. You can put them in front of them and... When you come back, pick up the trees, it's still not even touch them. Yeah. And you cannot the force them. Even the toilet. If they don't want to do toilet, even, you cannot force them. And when it's if it's abuse, if you force them to do anything, they don't want to do. But one last question. Wait, wait. Uh, uh, wait, 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 we crash. There's limited food and well, water. Well, you wanted a spirited passengers uh, Passengers are injured. You, you know they're going to die. You have only limited amounts of food and shelter. 
You don't know when you're going to be rescued. You see this in movies all the time. Whether it be on a life raft, you're on the hill, a blizzard, whatever. Do you withhold water and food to someone who you feel is going Peter, to be Peter, to that's a to- totally, totally different scenario. That's can triage. I, totally I, different. Can I go back to point? Which is, <laughs> the very beginning of this class, we mentioned uh, that on suicide and self-preservation that that's our main focus and if someone is in the point of pain or suffering or distress that they're going to withhold food and water from themselves to preserve themselves i think they're in a different state of mind and possibly arguably not cognitive it's not a it's not a form of comfort it's a form of requirement to live and to allow that to occur is 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 complicit at least at a minimum in my opinion so i think it's one thing i think chris to your point i think it's one thing to say i think john is right and that in one sense is a comfort but the difference i think is that if that comfort is withdrawn it will cause the death of the patient whereas other comforts being withdrawn won't cause the patient to die I think that's kind of the distinction there. Is that a fair point, John, or is that? That's absolutely, that's yes. absolutely correct. Yes, but the patient's <laughs> going to die anyway. Right. He's yeah, going to die anyway. That's, that's, that's the, 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 we say from the beginning that the patient's going to die. That's a given. Right. Okay. So you have to keep right. that in mind. So no matter what you do, he's going to die. Whether mm-hmm. you give him food or water or you withhold it, he's going to die. Correct. Either way. Right, but the thing There's is, the reason why it's called comfort tomorrow. No, you but see, I, I, weeks. guys, I, I'm sorry that the, 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 we're all gonna die, and we're all gonna die. And you had a patient, a lawyer who survived and sat up six months later. You just don't know if that's the case. So, you it, is it a comfort, or are you actually sustaining a person so they can recover and live and thrive? You, you, you can't make that. No, he's, he's he's a, it's given that he's gonna point. die, Chris. But we're all gonna die, John. No, but I'm yeah. saying it, within a couple of days, as I'm talking about. Remember that? Not, not that you know, you're not 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 at age ninety. You know, for you, food and water is not about curing the person. Of course not. It's about giving them the comfort, as John is saying. But at the same time, if it is withdrawn from the person, then it could potentially cause them to die. If they're dying two days from their stomach cancer, John, then you're right. That cancer killed them. But we don't know if what they have will kill them in two days, two weeks. We just don't know. And to withdraw food and water from them, it'd be uncomfortable, first of all. And second of all, may perhaps cause them to die from the withdrawal of those things. So to be very careful that we're not making any kind of assumptions that could potentially be we're the ones who are causing the end of their life. By the well, I've, got, I've got stomach cancer. I know I'm dying. Mm-hmm. And I want to withhold food and water because I don't want to prolong my agony, and I want to die uh, not uh, by a, a positive act, but by negative, but with not with 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 uh, withholding food and water, so that I die a little fast. Instead of dying in a week, I die in three days. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to disagree on this. Tough, one. tough business. Yeah, Anthony, any kind of. Point when I'm going to raise about that. I mean, I, again, I don't. This is kind of medical stuff as well. So I mean, no, I mean, again, if, if the person is, you know, is uh, you know, compass mentis, and they say that, you know, um, look, I don't, you know, I don't want anything done. You know, you have to abide by those wishes as long as you know. Now, the thing is, is that a lot of times what will happen is that patients will come in and they'll say that when they're admitted, 
and you know they appear like you know they're mentally intact you know but at that point you get a psych consult and you make sure that they're mentally intact that they know what's going on now that doesn't mean that you know a little bit down the line that they're not going to change their mind you know so again you know iv hydration is you know something that you know you know and a lot of times you can talk the patients down off the ledge you know, if you, you go in and you talk to them, they may say initially when they come in, look, I know I'm dying. I got this horrible tumor. I'm in pain. I'm this, I'm that. Okay, fine. I get it. You know, let's see what we can do, you know, step by step. You know, you give them some pain control. They start to feel a little bit better. You know, people come in and they talk to them, you know, and little by little, you know, I've seen, you know, and this is just purely from experience. Mm-hmm. That, you know, they start to, you know, they become amenable to, you know, treatment protocols that are not necessarily going to prolong their lives. They're not going to go out and run a marathon, but, you know, they're going to be comfortable. And and that's the goal. So you got always have to discuss the goals of care. The goals of care are the most important thing with the patient and with the family. You know, and if the goal of care is, again, not running a marathon, but to be comfortable you know, to possibly, you know, leave the hospital and go to, you know, a palliative care unit like Calvary Hospital, whatever it is, you know, that's, you know, that's your goal. Your goal is to be able to get them to a point, talk them down off that initial ledge, get them to understand, you know, hey, you're right, you're not going to be cured, but we want to make you comfortable. We want to make you, you know, you know, want to get you to a point that you're able to interact with people you're able to see your family members maybe you're able to go home you know but but that's what you want to do you know it's 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 humanity it's humane it's humane treatment how much i appreciate both john and anthony your contributions to this because this is not my field i'm I'm a priest you know i do i'm 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 not a doctor i'm not a medical professional i'm not a lawyer so your input here tonight this is invaluable for i think me and the guys to kind of hear this discussion, as well as two somewhat different opinions, to get an idea of that to help kind of hash out, you know, um, these very complicated cases that are are taking place at the very end of life that is one of the most um, sensitive periods for us. And so I, I appreciate greatly your input um, this evening with that, and giving us some kind of guidance. Because again, me personally, I mean. I don't have the same expertise by any, by any when stretch. When the exam comes, remember, we're not priests. That's what you Well, don't worry about that. I, I try to be as, as merciful as possible when it comes to the exams. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it, there, there is, it's important for us to work together on all this. Anthony, it's curious. With your, with your sitting on these boards that are, that are obviously for, for um, ethics and different hospitals, any pushback you get? On this kind of your position on this from other, other doctors that don't have the same uh, value system we do is there any kind of um, Anthony any kind of pushback from them or is it kind of not a big deal from their their comments to you um yeah you know between the pa- so between the you know the palliative care team and the ethics committee um, no not really I mean you right. know essentially it's you know again you know, when you're talking about comfort care, you're talking about comfort care, right? It's 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 a it's a situation which, you know, again, barring secondary gain, which you know, like I said, I'm dealing with a couple of, 
you know, family members of patients that, you know, are, you know, you keep my father alive in any, you know, I don't care what you have to do. You keep him alive despite the fact that he's suffering greatly um, because that person is 100% service connected and that family member is making, you know, $3,600 tax free a month. Um, you know, that's when things become very sticky and, you know, it, it becomes, that's a, that's another situation, you know, really not for this class, but the situation is when it comes to comfort care, I think everybody pretty much, you know, despite, you know, whether it be, you know, the physicians or, um, some of the, you know, the ancillary, you know, healthcare services, uh, I, I you know, everybody pretty much is on the same page. Okay. Any questions or comments about this tonight? Anything pressing on someone's mind or heart from what we talked about? Is everybody more confused than when you started? And well, I hope not. I hope that it, that it gave some degree of of clarity when it comes to the idea of hydration, nutrition. And you know, Ed gave us a very good class about a month ago on this. Well, I think it was important to do a bit of a deeper dive tonight into some of the particulars, because again, although we're not the ones in the hospital making the decisions or the John and anything might be, but we're not, the rest of us, you know, laymen, so to speak, not the ones making those decisions for people or giving them the advice. We are there, though, to help give them what the church teaches about this and dignity of life and what the basic principles are to give them the best, um, best cases and they need to be able to make the right decisions. And I think that tonight's conversation that's what it was, and it was great to have the conversation, rather than being me drawing off for two hours, um, to be able to kind of like just discuss these very sensitive topics. Um, the reading assignment for next week, uh, you can find it right in the book that I assigned you guys to read in Appendix A. It's Donum Vitae, The Good of Life, Donum Vitae. You can get it on the Vatican website, or you can get it on in the book. It's Appendix A, it's the first Appendix, Appendix A. Well, 35 pages and it lays out a really good argument for just teaching about embryonic stem cell research, um, IVF treatments, all that stuff. So we're going to progress to happier things next week, talking about beginning of life issues, which has its own ups and downs too, but uh, we're kind of progressing to the next, next part of our, of our course. So a little bit of a, giving you a sense of things. Next week will be the whole idea of beginning of life issues. The week after that will be organ transplants and surgery. The week after that will be the beginning of social ethics. And then comes the end of the course, focusing on uh, the state and issues of that nature. So some good, some good stuff for the end of the semester coming down here. And, um, you know, again, there's some really interesting things happening in the world right now. So we keep our, our eyes peeled for um, some of the interesting dynamics that are playing out uh, in the country and in the world. I'm happy to be survived the election, at least at this point. We'll, we'll keep going in, in survival mode here. But uh, otherwise, any veterans in, the, in class tonight? Any vets? Yes. Thank you, guys. Wednesday Veterans Day, and thank you for your service. Thank you for your your yes to serve our country. <clears throat> so it is definitely appreciated and blessings to, both, to all of you who have served our country. And, uh, 11, 11, 11. Yeah. Yeah. You know what 11, 11, 11 is? Armistice Day. Well, it's, yeah, so, well, it's 11, well, what is the it? 11th hour, the 11th, 11th day, day of the 11th day. month. Yeah, that's right. That's right, yeah. 
So we thank you guys for, for your service to, uh, to our country. So, all right, fellas. Okay. I will see you all next Monday. God bless you. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Great class. Thank you. Magical class. It makes it. Absolutely. Have a good night. Good night, everyone.